Good day, my friends, and welcome to another moment, a Black History Moment with Bo. I hope your day is going well and that you are staying out of that horrible weather a third of our population at this time is going through. Just remember, joy comes in the morning. I'm going to take right off where we left off at in part one. So let's take a moment and slip into darkness. Now, if you were a labor agent in Jacksonville, Florida, the city council required a thousand dollar license failure to pay while recruiting the town's black workers to leave could result in a $600 fine and 60 days in jail. The Georgia legislature considered it a felony, punishable by three to seven years in prison for any labor agent who sought to entice blacks out of the state to work elsewhere. The Montgomery City Council Commission enacted a law that any person who would entice, persuade, or influence any laborer or other persons to leave the city of Montgomery for the purpose of being employed at any other place as a laborer would be fined $100 and face six months hard labor or both. And these Southerners weren't playing. Several agents got got busted whenever a train of African-Americans left and the fields were empty and there was no one to work the land. The Reverend D.W. Johnson, a black labor agent in Mississippi, barely escaped detection for handing out free railroad passes north to African-Americans. City councils, state legislatures, and police forces were determined to punish those who, in a capitalistic economy, offered African Americans a better employment opportunity. We as a people just did not have that right. That was the message as white authorities went after labor agents. So when they found out that that was not going to slow us down, the white elites searched for yet another outside agitator. And they found that in the Chicago Defender, an anti-South black newspaper. You see, central to the Great Migration, the Chicago Defender served as one of the primary conduits of information about opportunities up north. Using a distribution center of African-American railroad porters, the paper extended its influence well beyond Chicago and deep into the Mississippi Delta. And its open contempt for white racist regimes turned a simple newspaper into a symbol of African-American pride and defiance. 
and some people say its circulation may have been hundreds of thousands, and the illiterate, or barely illiterate, listened while the paper was read in churches and diners and barbershops. The message was somewhat revolutionary because it stated more than once that Dixie was going to have to prove that it deserved the presence of African Americans, not the other way around. You see, my friends, the defender was bold. It didn't flinch. It talked about not only the Klan, but also the governors, legislators, governors, officials, and business leaders who benefited from a system of oppression. And they constantly published, one after another, ads about job opportunities in the North with wages that were unheard of to Southerners. And there were always pictures of homes and schools. The First Amendment and the freedom of the press were sacred constitutional rights in the United States. And the defender had not violated any liable law. Did the lynchings happen? They did. The theft of wages was real. The rape of black women was no secret. But like black history moments, the defender had done nothing but report the truth. But the southern elites felt it had to be silenced. In Pine Bluff, Arkansas, they banned the distribution of the Chicago Defender anywhere in the county. In Meridian, Mississippi, they confiscated the paper from the dealers. But you know, all that did was force the papers underground. But we had a band of railroad porters, ministers, and teachers even sometimes under the surveillance, worked to circumvent the ban using the postal system and smuggling the papers in bulk goods. And the attempt to keep the paper out of African Americans' hands only increased the credibility and importance. But the law in Montgomery made it clear The very idea of freedom of movement and the concept that labor could go wherever it could get the best benefits had to be stopped. While in Franklin, Mississippi, an African-American preacher who sold the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, NAACP magazine, Crisis, was hit with a $400 fine and sentenced to five months on the county farm. But my friends, no matter what they did, the beatings, the threatenings, our ancestors were determined and they kept moving and moving and moving. Nothing could stop them. So what did those Southern elites do next? They went after the railroad system, and they used all kind of tactics. One was to just physically stop the train from moving. And they knew that World War I was raging, and the shipment of personnel and material was crucial to supporting the Allies. 
They didn't care. White Southern leaders prioritized their need to stop the advancement of African Americans above all other conditions, including victory over the nation that had sunk the Lusitania and killed nearly 1,200 passengers and crew members. In Mississippi, where in Greenville, Greenwood, and Brookhaven, trains were stopped and sometimes sidetracked for days. The federal government finally stepped in when the police chief in Meridian, Mississippi, held up a train on a technicality. The U.S. Marshals moved in and arrested the highest-ranking lawman on the spot. But they were determined to keep us there, keep us working their fields and raising their children. Jackson, Mississippi officials threatened to rig court decisions if the railroad did not stop handing out passes for African Americans to go north. Die hard, die hard haters. My friends, I mentioned to you before, the only concept for slavery is one, you are too lazy to do something, or two, you don't know how to do something. So now the South was strangling interstate commerce and being willing to hijack the legal system to blackmail the railroads into submission. So next is go after the African Americans directly. In Albany, Georgia, the police ripped up the tickets of black passengers who were on the platform waiting to board. Jacksonville Mayor Jet Baldwin was upset that there were so many black men near the labor recruiting station and trying to board the trains that he had the police chief arrest them for vagrancy and told nearly 500 men that they would not be allowed to leave the city for better jobs. Memphis Police Inspector Earl Barnard seized 26 northbound African Americans, charged them with vagrancy, and then routed them to a plantation in Arkansas in what can only be called peonage. And likewise, in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, the ticket agent, under the advice and counsel of the town's citizens, simply refused to sell any tickets to African Americans. And when blacks tried walking many miles to use another station, they were manhandled by police at the railroad station and then charged with vagrancy and weren't released until the trains had left the city. But now they were becoming desperate. So desperate, the mayor of New Orleans wired the president of the Illinois Century Railroad asking his company to stop carrying Negroes to the north. In a reply that was primer on basic federal law and economics, the railroad executor explained that neither his company nor any other one, given the interstate commerce clause, could refuse to sell tickets or provide transportation to paying customers. And then he said, considering the high wages that blacks were now getting in the North, 
the South needed to brace itself because the exodus would surely continue. But rather than brace themselves, the same Southern leaders who had always been proud adherents of states' rights now lobbied the federal government for help. They recognized that the nation's mobilization for World War I could provide the perfect patriotic cover despite their own string of transgressions to staunch the flood of blacks out of the South. In 1918, the Selective Service Division of the federal government issued a work or fight order that required every able-bodied person to be either inducted into the armed services or employed in the key industry the nation needed to wage total war. But instead, the white South took full advantage of the fog of war to keep African Americans from migrating north, conjuring up a new version of the infamous vagrancy laws that had fueled the convict lease labor system after the Civil War. And they used the so-called consuls of defense to corral black bodies for planters, mill operators, and other employers. The justification of this new form of bondage as a defense of God and country was a fig leaf to cover the southern state's true self-serving motives. The NAACP added that it was no accident that the work or fight order lined up exactly with the portion of the territory in the U.S., in which the institution of slavery formerly existed. All the while, the chief of the United States Employment Services, a man from Meridian, Mississippi, vowed that the first thing he was going to do was to see that niggers were stopped from going north. But black flight was in motion. They were fleeing from the brutality of the racial justice system that covered everything from racial-based pay scales to poor schoolings. But still, we rose, and the Great Migration directly challenged the foundation. Black success was the white South's boogeyman, and African Americans continued to leave. As the Chicago defender stated, More thousands kissed the South a last goodbye. Mississippi Delta is being stripped of laborers. Every train brings guests north. Yet the land above the Mason-Dixon line was, as DuBose remarked, no paradise and certainly no haven from oppression. Beginning in 1917 and going into the 1920s, So-called race riots were essentially lynchings on a grander scale, erupted in East St. Louis, Chicago, Washington, D.C., and numerous other cities. These were rampages where whites went hunting for African Americans to punish, burn, and torture. Killing was just an added bonus. In some instances in Chicago, Blacks fought back, but in all instances, they were outnumbered. 
white fear of black competition for jobs ignited violence. Anxiety over housing ignited violence. For decades, when it appeared African Americans were moving into white neighborhoods, race riots became an all-too-familiar drumbeat to drive blacks back to an overcrowded, dilapidated slum. So there you have it, my friends. Truth. The exodus of our ancestors leaving the South. The reason that 90% of us are in the places we are in now. Is systemic racism here? Of course it is. You can knock us down, but you cannot keep us down. You see, powerful people cannot afford to educate the people they oppress. Because once you are truly educated, you will not ask for power. You will take it. Until next time, my friends, it has been my honor.